How would you define what it means to be a fan? Being a fan is a really uplifting experience, which sounds really airy fairy, but it is. It's wonderful. Fandom is most about passionate engagement with some form of media. As a teenager, I would cover my walls with posters of Cobra Starship I was obsessed with. I had in my Twitter bio how many of the five members had talked to me on Twitter. I constantly tweeted them, watched all of their videos. I would like draw on my converse, like song lyrics. It brings a sense of belonging because you know you're not alone, because we all love this show, this movie, this book, this comic, this game. I love being a fan. We're all fans of something. And in 2019, we're pretty lucky because who or what we're a fan of is within serious reach, literally at our very fingertips. You can follow, engage with, and even direct message people you're a fan of. But also, find others just like you to talk to, gush, and bond over the things you collectively love. But as digital and social media have reshaped the fan experience, more now than ever before, fandoms are turning sour. Where sour quickly snowballs into flat-out toxic. I got completely turned off watching the show by trying to participate in the fandom there because it is a very aggressive passion fandom was no longer a safe place for them or a place that they felt comfortable. That really blew up on their little sphere of the internet and soon enough they were emailing my bosses trying to get me fired. It was about shutting me down. Today we're looking at vicious fandoms in the digital age. Why fans can get so aggressive and what to do if they launch an attack against you. This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Jake Morecambe. So fan experience before the digital space, a lot of it is obviously very informal, very face-to-face. Chris Comerford from the University of Technology Sydney researches online fandoms. Communities would have had mailing groups A lot of it would have been if you happen to meet someone in the street who's a fan of something you are, or if you're in the 60s and onwards, if you happen to meet them at conventions. Star Trek is one, if not the first franchise, that rallied a community of fans from all over the globe. Star Trek spawned the conventions that we now know as things like Comic-Con and Supernova meeting up with other fans of the show and being able to collaborate a bit more directly. And then once you go to the convention, you can pick up someone's phone number or their mailing address or what have you. It's also recognised as having one of the most infamous fan bases, Trekkies. Members run the gamut of, I watched an episode once, to I got married dressed as a Klingon. Many of the hardcore fans recite the script to every episode. And I do know people who do that. It sounds like a really hyperbolic claim, but there are guys who do read the scripts and can cite episode by episode, and they've got far more brain space than I do. And what do you think drives that? Why do you think the fan experience is something that can be so passion fueled? I think that 
really depends on the individual and what it is they're getting out of the media. Lauren McEnroy is an assistant professor from Ohio State University. Gratification. That is the primary reason why an individual would engage is they're getting something out of it. And that may be some kind of benefit or pleasure, belonging, a sense of connectedness. It's enjoyable. I love it. It's fun. The idea of that connection being very beneficial to supporting their own well-being. The rise of social and digital media, Chris explains, has turned the fan experience into something universal. The benefits of social media and the digital space give fans a much more direct line to each other, and particularly when it comes to, again, those niche, fragmented fandoms, they can find the needles in the haystacks much more easily. But while connecting with others and feeling a part of something can be super rewarding, Chris says, particularly in online fandoms, this can quickly turn possessive. The sense of ownership and entitlement has only become more of a problem in many ways because of social media giving that outreach. So Star Trek, for example. Star Trek Discovery, the new series, came out in 2017, and a lot of fans who'd been with this franchise that's upwards of 50 years old basically were saying, the lead is a black woman, the show is a prequel before the shows that I know, and it's messing with the canon in all these ways, and it looks all nice and shiny and made with CGI rather than the dinky models and, and you know styrofoam sets they had in the original. This isn't Star Trek. And I know it isn't because I've been a fan for however long and because I've met William Shatner at a convention and he signed my arm and I got it tattooed. Hashtag not my Star Trek. Is that a legit hashtag? Probably somewhere it is, yeah. (laughs) Undoubtedly. While in the past, this bickering has mostly played out in fan circles, in the digital age, these conversations and opinions are bleeding into the mainstream and it can get ugly. So the one that jumps to mind is Kelly Marie Tran, who played Rose Tycho in the Star Wars films, who had fans of Star Wars who came after her being a very prominent character who I think was the first Asian actress cast in a leading role in a Star Wars film. A lot of the fans of the franchise who wanted to maintain the quote-unquote purity of the narrative and purity of the franchise basically bullied her off Instagram because they were slinging all this horrible, xenophobic, racist stuff at her, saying that she wasn't a good character and wasn't a good actress and, you know, mocked her heritage and mocked her ethnicity in defence of their favourite franchise. So it was couched in this idea of them doing it because Star Wars needed to be this certain thing, this certain idea they had of it in their heads. And it basically made her quit social media for a while. Because it was horrible. Like Some of the stuff they were putting up there was appallingly bad and not in keeping with fandom. It just went straight into very toxic discourses. This malicious sense of ownership is also rife in pop music, something music writer at Junkie, Jared Richards, experienced firsthand. Earlier this year, Jared wrote a piece on Taylor Swift, where shortly after it was published, her fans launched an online attack against him. But before we go into that, you have to understand what led him to write the article in the first place. 
The Taylor Swift article I wrote was this big feature around the time that her music video for You Need to Calm Down came out, which was the second single off Lover, her most recent album. In the music video, essentially she's got this plethora of gay figures and queer figures in a trailer park with her, flouncing around, having a great time. There's a line in the song... Shade never made anybody less gay. And in the song, it kind of ties in both Taylor Swift haters and people trying to pass anti-LGBTIQ laws in the US. And for me, I felt that was really naff. This music video and this song and this sudden LGBTIQ activism felt like pandering because Taylor Swift has been famously very apolitical for much of her career to the point where she wouldn't condemn Trump in 2017 and 2016. So I wrote an article outlining the difficult politics of it, and the headline was uh, very spicy, admittedly. It was, Taylor Swift, you need to calm down because gay pride isn't all about straight people. I personally, on my own Twitter account, tweeted it out with, Taylor Swift can't say the can I say faggot (laughs) I can say faggot I can say faggot Taylor Swift can't say faggot that was a problem so I tweeted it out with Taylor Swift can't say faggot and that got their attention I slowly got in some notifications being like she can say faggot what gives you the right she can do what she wants but it kind of began to go out of control a little bit when they went through my search history and I've had my Twitter account since I was about 15 years old And in it, apparently, I didn't know this, when I was about 17, I tweeted out uh, the Kanye West and Jay-Z song N-Word in Paris, and I didn't blur out that first N-Word, which is pretty poor form. And so they screenshot that, and they're like, oh, so Taylor Swift can't say this, but you can say that. Sounds about white. And that really blew up on their little sphere of the internet. And soon enough, they were emailing my bosses, trying to get this across social media as widely as possible, saying that I should be fired for my irresponsible journalism. Went on for a good three, four days, and I just kind of went offline because any time I would engage, it would just incite them further. It was a lot. Fans who passionately go to these extremes in the past few years have been dubbed a new name, stans. A stan is a term born on the internet that essentially means superfan. The two etymologies I've found are... Online fandom researcher Chris Comerford. The Eminem song, Stan, which is, I think, the popularly conceived idea of of a fan who's that passionate... But it's also a portmanteau of stalking and fan is a stan. Stans are incredibly active with their fandom online, where many cluster together on Twitter, making stan accounts and forming communities. Back to Jared Richards. They have the artist that they're standing as their profile picture. Their username will say the message of the hour, so Stream Lover by Taylor Swift or something like that, some sort of inside joke. Scrolling through their feed, it will just be about that artist, more or less. Pictures, videos, quotes, anything. That's what they are. They are a stan, and they're always performing stand-in. On the surface, it all sounds pretty harmless. But dig a little deeper, and these stan circles operate like 
hives. Stands are very good at strategizing, particularly on Twitter where so many stan armies are very prolific. Stan army. Yeah. You see somebody do something and it becomes the day's target or the day's project. This hive strategy about how to achieve something, whether that's a streaming target or cancelling somebody, developed into this real beast. Where if you wrong a Stan's favourite, they go for the jugular. The thing is, I actually got it pretty good. Earlier in the year, a writer, Rosalind Toulousen, wrote this article about Ariana Grande and her weird relationship to race, because Ariana Grande is a white woman, um, and she doesn't always present as one. It was a really interesting article, and it blew up online, where people really came for Rosalind, and Ariana Grande even subtweeted her, and talked about how bloggers will one day see the light and not have to tear people down. The fans really jumped on that as well. And with Rosalind, they had a lot more ammunition. They called her quite racist names, racist epithets. They brought up articles that she'd previously written about her own experiences of sexual assault, and they were saying these awful things about how she deserved it, et cetera, et cetera, or how she was too ugly for it to actually happen. Just these really terrible, genuinely traumatic things that pulled who this person is in a way that was completely irrelevant to the actual article. And I was very lucky that they didn't do that. And I think that's because I am like a white cisgendered male and, you know, they couldn't really tackle me on being gay because that would prove my point. And I don't really have anything else that they can hit me on, you know. Not only will stands lash out and defend who they're standing, but Jared believes they take any sort of criticism towards their favourite pop star as a personal attack. It becomes a moral judgement on them and the labour that they've put into standing an act. You've got these people online coming to defend an inch of their life and you know, there are death threats and all the like, trying to ruin people's lives and essentially get them out of a job as they were with me. And that's far from the worst that's happened online for somebody who is really talented and may make amazing art and amazing music. But at the end of the day is a very wealthy person who will be fine. The amount of vitriol in what they were saying and the way that they were saying it was very, very intense. And It's scary because it makes you not want to criticise an act. It makes you want to not criticise Taylor Swift. But what you wrote about, around the time of the video, it was also Pride Month, and there were a lot of companies coming out with these ridiculous pink products to pander to queer people. Yeah. So what she was doing should also be open to criticism. Yeah, I mean, that is my job to critique artists and it's not like I was alone in saying that either the difficult thing about this article and about a lot of stan culture is there really isn't any nuance so if you're critiquing an artist for one issue they'll assume that you're cancelling them or that you think that they should go away forever and I don't think that about Taylor Swift I think she should do better And that article was asking her to do so and to just point out why people were frustrated with that song, myself included. 
One part of stan culture that makes it so hard to understand, and ultimately address, is that some stans will hide behind their profiles, keeping who they really are secret. Who are these people? Yeah, who are these people? There's an anonymous aspect to it. It's really hard to understand from the outside, and it's everywhere for every act, how big or how small they are, whether it's Taylor Swift or Mitski. Standom exists on a complete range of uh, celebrity and of art, and also across genre, across medium. It is all-inclusive, and it feels like the only way to appreciate an artist is to use a stand vocabulary, which feels both very exciting in one way because it creates like this lovely community, but also very limiting in that it loses criticality. Do then content creators, the, the subjects of fandom, have a responsibility to call out toxic fan behavior? Because if you think about it, you're ultimately calling out the people who support you. How divisive is that? Or should you be doing that? Should the content creators be calling out toxic fandom? Fandom researcher Chris Comerford. I think having the people who make those shows and films calling out the ardent sectors who have gone and crossed the line, there's something to be said on the positives of that, but I think it also can then create a bit of a, a, bit of a problem where you ask who decides that that fandom has gone too far. So if you have the creator of a show who goes to a fan and says, You've doxxed my lead actor, you've sent death threats to my director, you're talking about how you want to get this show cancelled, you're clearly not being critical, you're just being horrible, like that kind of thing is pretty cut and dry. But I'm just, I'm leery of how critique of toxic fandom would be done and whether it would be done with finesse and nuance because just simply calling them out can stoke them further and can invite reprisal and can uh, you know the old adage of don't feed the troll um, can definitely make that uh, more of a problem with no real way to hold stands to account chris worries that for many stand culture is damaging the fan experience it makes it harder to be a fan of something so the example there for me is rick and morty I got completely turned off watching the show by trying to participate in the fandom there because it is very ardent, overly passionate, and nothing wrong with having a lot of passion for it, but like this particular kind of very aggressive passion for the franchise that made it hard to be a casual viewer. And what? how exactly? Just talking nonstop about the memes, about the... Uh, how great every episode was and not really inviting a lot of critical discussion. Chris adds these spaces that have typically been inviting and about connecting with other fans are becoming exclusionary. And you very much got the sense that if you didn't come already having seen every episode 20 times and knowing everything in and out, you were going to be on the out and there's no real space for casual viewers. Jared Richards from Junkie says what can make stan culture in the pop music world exclusive is the language stans will use. Terms, phrases and in-jokes that a more casual fan might not understand. Even the word stan itself. You may have heard it being used throughout this episode as a verb 
that you stand someone. It's an act. You are standing. To some, this might not make sense. But to Jared, rather than feel excluded, for the most part, he finds what stands say pretty funny. You know, Lady Gaga's done a lot of really great things. Stan. And... (laughs) (laughs) We stan. Yeah, we stan. We have no choice. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, even the the language of, like, we have no choice but to stan. We have no choice but to stan is a phrase thrown around a lot in stan circles. You do have a choice. Like, I use it so often as well. And it's very funny. And, like, that's the thing about stan culture. It's inherently funny. One of my favorite things that they do is that there'll be a tweet about something, about, like, Donald Trump, and then somebody underneath will just put a GIF of a K-pop star and say, stream them. (laughs) And it's like, you're doing the God's work, really, (laughs) just pushing them out, making sure that there are eyeballs across it. But you always have a choice to... It's not just standing or not standing. I'm curious if there's anyone, whether it be pop star or not, that you personally have passionate fan experience towards Mm. and how that might differ from what you see um, occurs in stand circles. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of artists that I feel passionate about. It's why I do what I do, but wasn't quite used as a barb against other people. I definitely think there is much more of a platform to be vicious. I'm sure there were stands in the 80s going around, <laughs> getting into arguments at bars about Madonna's best singles um, versus Paula Abdul and, and the like. But, <laughs> string Paula. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but now there is an immediacy of this argument. The discourse is just so fast-paced that there is always something for stands to be talked about. While the toxicity and exclusion in stand culture lives on, The word stan is slowly taking on new life. A less aggressive life. The word stan is blending into the mainstream language of the internet, where people who aren't stans are using the term to show support towards a person, a progressive idea, standing for something good. You can have people, and I see some of these cultural critics on Twitter who are using Stan... Chris Comerford. ...as a verb and from a place of that passion that stops short of being obsession and repression of others. So, for example, saying that you love Eleanor from The Good Place, uh, saying, I stand for Eleanor. Just saying that you love her and she's a great character and you love Kristen Bell, but not in like a way that says if anyone was to say that she wasn't their favourite character, you'd go hunt them down and burn their house down. Where instead, the word Stan, used somewhat ironically, could alert more to the toxic side of standoms. Maybe there's an attempt to reclaim the term or shift the meanings behind it into something a little more benign or a little bit more pro-social. Jared Richards from Junkie, however, isn't so sure. Saying stuff like we simply have to stand or using stand language, either ironically or semi-ironically, perhaps only fortifies that community. There's just so much content around it and so many memes and so much discourse that 
I don't know, the sheer volume is just unlike anything we've ever seen before, I think. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. Think Digital Futures is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Digital Futures wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.